Welcome to Mana News. I'm Andrew Robb. In our program today, a Maori activist tells the government don't bother with Andrew Robb presenting Mana News on National Radio back in the mid 1990s. Today, in our series about Pākehā and the Maori world, I talk to Andrew, who has had an over 30 year career using Maori language, most of it in the media. How a European New Zealander with Scottish and Australian ancestry, ultimately ended up as a media advisor for the Māori Party, is a story that begins at Victoria University back in 1974. There were Māori kids in primary school, you know, that I went to school with. I'm sure their parents probably spoke Māori, but the idea of anybody speaking Māori never occurred to me. And, and so when I went to university, I don't know what it was that prompted me to learn Māori, to decided that I wanted to do Māori. But uh, I went to my first meeting of Te Reo Māori Society, uh, which was the sort of, you know, the Māori club at, at uh, Victoria University. And I arrived a little bit late, and uh, the meeting had already got underway. <laughs> and it was in the old tennis pavilion, which was a single room with just a little bench and, uh, you know, a little kitchen in one room. But there was, there was just one single room, and you went up the outside steps and opened the door, and then you were in the meeting. And um, the place was packed, and uh, I didn't know a single soul there. Though I'd, I saw one person there that I recognised from one of the lectures we'd had earlier in the week, but I, I didn't know anybody there. And um, I just slunk in the door and sat down quietly, <laughs> trying to look unobtrusive. And uh, the person speaking was the Reverend Hemi Portato, the late Reverend Hemi Portato, who was the patron of Te Reo Māori, and he was doing the opening whaikōrā of welcome to all the students. And I could understand only two words that he was using. One was Māori and the other was Pākehā. And he was, he was gesturing around the room, welcoming all the new students, the Māori and the Pākehā. And as he sort of finished his gesture, he was always pointing at me when he said Pākehā. <laughs> and... and uh, I thought, now, just get real, uh, and I can't have done anything wrong. You know, it's a public meeting. I've just come in. I've just sat down. <laughs> but I was, it was just this absolute revelation. It was an epiphany, you know, because I instantly understood that Hemi had been speaking Māori all his life, and he was 72 at the time. And I thought, how come I've never heard anybody like Hemi speaking Māori? There's obviously this whole culture out there that I had no inkling existed. It was an astonishing, stunning revelation to me. <laughs> so I sat there, just eyes popping out of my head for the whole of the meeting, uh, and other people you know, spoke, and I could instantly tell who were the native speakers and who were the second language learners. Um, and, you know, it was, just, it was just amazing. I'd just never seen anything like it. And then the formalities finished, and we stopped for a cup of tea, and I bolted out the door. <laughs> was, it, was that a bit imposing, uh, being in a situation where um, you only understood two words? Well, it, uh, it, it, it was a revelation of my ignorance. That's what it was. It was this stunning revelation that the, the, there was this whole life been going on around me and I had absolutely no idea and I couldn't understand how that could be. So I rushed home and I just thought, I've got a lot to think about, you know, and, and secondly, I've got a lot to learn. You know, it was like this door had been opened up to this huge void in my life, you know. Mm. Um, 
How did you feel as a Pākehā in that meeting? Uh, I felt out of my depth, you know. Uh, I felt that everybody else understood what was going on and I didn't. I thought that I was the only one who didn't understand what was going on. Um, but I never felt afraid or anything, no. I just Everybody was universally welcoming and warm and encouraging and, you know, I was incredibly lucky to meet that group of people at that particular time because it was a, a very exciting time for Māori language and for Māori issues generally and I, I felt I had this incredible luck to be part of this amazing movement and these amazing groups of people. So um, what happened? Um, did did uh, some of the other subjects take a bit of a, <laughs> a back seat to, to your pursuit of um, the real? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I did went to all my classes and lectures and things. I was a good student in that way. But uh, Māori and Te Reo Māori Society particularly started occupying much more of my time. <laughs> I don't know what the others used to think about me because I didn't know them. But, you know, I was just absolutely fascinated and I was like a sponge, you know. And so um, I'd just go and sit down at the cafe, in the cafe, with other members of Te Reo Māori Society and just sit there. I didn't know them really and I didn't say a word. I just sat there listening and listening and listening. I don't know what they thought about me. Um, but other times I'd go into the language lab and I'd put on tapes of Māori conversations, interviews with people or, or songs. And again, I didn't understand a word of it, but I'd listen to it for hour after hour after hour and um, just, you know, attuning myself, I suppose, to the language. And one day I suddenly heard a whole sentence, you know, that I could understand. Up until then I hadn't really, I'd been able to pick out the odd word here and there, but suddenly I heard a whole sentence and then another and then another. And then I lost the thread of the... the the uh, interview and you know it was all back to not understanding what on earth people were talking about but it was a very sudden process of making a breakthrough when you learn a language you taught a little bit about the, the sort of cultural side um, what went on as far as the cultural immersion that came with the language well, Te Reo Māori was a terrific organisation because there, there was a double focus. The first was on developing the language skills of members. And so older members would mentor newer students and uh, we'd have tutorial classes. And also part of the learning was waiata and haka and karakia and things like that. So there was quite a bit of cultural learning. But then... In the second half of the evening, we would focus on the sort of political aspects of promoting Te Reo Māori. And um, uh, that was, I mean, I started learning in 1974, which was two years after the petition was presented to Parliament calling for Māori to be taught in schools. And the date of that presentation of the petition, September the 14th, became Māori Language Day as a way of focusing... Um, uh, national attention on all of the issues surrounding Māori language and I think it was a day in 1972 and maybe 1973 and then in 1974 it was a week, first Māori language week and so part of our political activity was looking at what we could do during Māori language week to promote um, Te Reo Māori. It was you know pretty basic kind of efforts just to raise the flag, get something in the newspaper if we could. 
That period, um, at least in some histories, is referred to as a Māori renaissance. Were you aware of that, or was that something that you were conscious of when you were attending those meetings? Well, it was all new to me. You know, it was all completely new to me. And so I was just soaking it all in. It took me probably a few years to get a bit more of of a broader sense of whether we were making progress or what was going on. I mean... We would go off and talk to people about um, pronunciation of Māori on national radio or whatever, offer them free lessons in pronunciation. They'd say, thanks very much, you know, great idea, but uh, don't call us, we'll call you. And so, you know, we were not necessarily conscious of making a lot of progress, especially in those early years. But looking back on it now, we can see that it was the beginning of a lot of things. The other thing that started happening around about the same time was uh, a big survey of the use of Māori language, which was undertaken by NZ Council for Educational Research under Richard Benton. And that had an electrifying effect, I think, on a lot of Māori communities to actually have detailed, factual information about how many people in their communities spoke Māori, who was using Māori, who was using Māori at home so that their children were acquiring Māori and so on. And... uh, the results were quite shocking. You know, it showed that um, there were actually a lot more speakers of Māori than a lot of people realised, but that very few of them were younger people. The language was not being transmitted to to uh, following generations. And so, more or less at the same time that we were involved in promoting Māori language through Te Reo Māori Society, there was also a, a sudden awareness among Māori communities themselves of the the powerless state of the language and uh, the urgency of doing something about it. Were you um, were you taken to mar- to Marae in, in in those early years of learning the language and, and introduced to the other aspects of the culture other than the language? Yeah, I remember my first Marae trip uh, was in must have been in nineteen seventy four, possibly nineteen seventy five. Uh, we went to Tiki Tiki, and uh, Te Reo Māori had a group that went up to stay at Te Rahui Marae in Tiki Tiki, and that was another utter revelation to me. You know, it's the first time I'd ever ever stayed on a marae. You know, surrounded by language, and it, the the marae was very um, very old fashioned in those days. The kaota had an open fire, you know, with railway irons and pots and things. It was um, it was uh, yeah. Pretty basic, sacks over the windows and things, but it was just the most fantastic, incredible visit. Just, I'll never forget that either. What, what was it about that, Andrew? I mean, um, what was it um, the, the, the kind of spirit that existed there or the fact that you were able to start using the language in its, its proper setting? <laughs> well, we did. I didn't feel confident about using the Māori. I mean, it must have been in 1974 because, I, you know, I was only just really starting to get to grips with the basics. And so, again, it was a bit like being at my first meeting of Te Reo Māori. It was like this whole revelation. I was sort of a bit scared of doing things wrong. I thought that, you know, I was really more or less one of the few who didn't know what to do or, you know, <laughs> I was afraid of offending people. But it was just such a lovely... We had lovely weather. It was, yeah, it was just really terrific. And getting to know the other members of Te Reo Māori... Do you at some point um, uh, start becoming like like feeling like you're part of it, or are you are you reminded because you're Pākehā that that you're not? In 
Maori society more generally, I was, you know, apprehensive, but not because I was made to feel that way. People were incredibly generous, incredibly open. I mean, um, they were very, very welcoming. And uh, Te Reo Māori was a great group to belong to because people were aware of what Te Reo Māori Society was doing and they, you know, they supported it. So I was always very proud to be a member of Te Reo Māori Society. Yeah, so no, I, I felt that I had a role and, and the good thing was that Te Reo Māori Society provided me with a role. You know, it gave me the, the, the opportunity to be involved in the promotion of, of Māori language so that I felt that I could, you know, contribute something in return for this incredible gift that I was being given. A gift? In what sense? It was access, really. It was access and insight. Uh, into into this society and all these communities that that had been busy functioning, you know, beyond my horizon. I was thinking the other day, actually, that it it was it made such a huge difference to my life. It was almost like um, gaining sight in a second eye. You know, it's it's the advantage of well, the difficulties of being blind in one eye is it's is that you can see things, but it's difficult to judge depth and distance. But once you've got two ways of looking at the world, they interact and, and you get a much greater depth and resonance and much more clarity and detail and a much clearer sense of where you fit in the world, where you are and what the world looks like around you because you've got two points of view that, that, you, that, that interact with each other. Yeah. Um, you mentioned activism. <laughs> I mean, that was sort of part of university life in those days. Was there sort of activism in the sense of uh, the land marches, the bastion points, uh, the, 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 the injustices that, that people started to become aware of, or the Pākehā world started to become aware of uh, during that time? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I started learning Māori in 1974 and 1975 was the year the Land March came to Wellington. Um, uh, Te Reo Māori hosted, we had provision for 300 people to stay uh, up at Victoria University. We got mattresses and food and um, we were all organised. But they were incredibly exciting times. Uh, Te Reo Māori was always quite focused on Māori language. They said that as Te Reo Māori Society, that's our focus, and it avoided um, making public statements on other issues or taking a stance on those kind of things. But uh, as a Māori group in Wellington at the time, you couldn't you couldn't remain separate from all the other things that were going on. I remember, for example, um, that I'd been involved with Te Reo Māori Society for quite a few years and we talked a lot about the Treaty of Waitangi and, you know, rights under the treaty and da-da-da. And, um, but it wasn't until we actually were designing a handbill to dish out at the railway station on Waitangi Day, you know, talk about the Waitangi Day protest. And it wasn't until then, you know, working on exactly what we were going to say and how we were going to lay it out, that it really dawned on me that the Treaty of Waitangi is as much about Pākehā people and the the rights and status of Pākehā people in New Zealand as it is about Māori. Up until then, my whole attitude had been that the treaty is something that Māori signed <laughs> and it was something that gave Māori rights and that 
you know, the treaty protected Maori people's interests. And it never occurred to me really to look at the other side of the coin and say, but hang on a minute, it's equally about giving Pākehā status and rights in New Zealand on certain conditions. In the 1970s, Andrew got involved in the cause of Māori land rights. He joined with those opposed to the Crown's confiscation and subdivision of Māori land at Bastien Point and travelled up to join supporters prior to mass arrests. I was flatting with um, people from Te Reo Māori Society in Ngātamatoa and so on in Wellington and uh, our flat became the centre of the Wellington Bastion Point Support Committee and so when um, delegations came from Bastion Point to talk to the government at Parliament, you know, they'd sometimes stay with us or visit us or we'd go with them and we would organise leafleting and pamphlets and organise meetings and discussions in town, uh, raise money and send it up to them and then, and then when we could go up and stay at Bastion Point. First time I went there was at Easter. So the people had been camping since January but around Easter, the weather was starting to change and they realised that little tents are not going to cut it in the middle of winter. And so plans have been made to build a meeting house and a, uh, a, an old building was found in South Auckland and it was demolished and then rebuilt on the bastion point as Aroha Nui, the meeting house. And um, I had a van then. We drove up, uh, took a group of people up in my van from Wellington and we arrived at the gate and people sort of spilled out of the van and they said, whose van is this? Whose van is this? Quick, we need this van. And um, so I drove my van over to a school somewhere in South Auckland where they had some leftover carpet. They'd just replaced the carpet and the old carpet was rolled up underneath the school and we heaved all the carpet into the back of the van and took it up and rolled it out on the floor of the meeting house at Bastion Point. Whether you leave peacefully and with dignity or whether you are forcibly removed is a decision for you to make. Those of you who are willing to leave are immediately to make your way to the gate facing the Oraki Marae. Uh, the arrests themselves were another, you know, dramatic moment for me for sure. Because I looked around the meeting house and I just thought, there are people here from all walks of life. There are factory workers, there are unemployed people, um, there are ministers, there are senior, you know, there were, there were bureaucrats, there were youth workers, just every kind of age group of forestry workers and um, all sorts of people here, just universally, totally in support of this kaupapa. Um and uh, it, it was very, you know, emotions ran high. It was a very emotional time for me, but I was not I was not afraid. I knew exactly what I was doing there. Actually, the week leading up to the arrests, I was working at the in the kitchen at the marae, and that was the most exciting and dramatic time. The radio was going, and you could hear news reports of convoys of army vehicles being seen crossing Auckland, and, you know, the arrests were obviously imminent, and... You know, the whole city, the whole country was on, on red alert, you know, for this dramatic showdown, which everybody knew was going to happen. And meanwhile, through the wall, people were just streaming onto the marae at Bastion Point. It was just unbelievable. 
hundreds and thousands of people each day just streaming on to you know to state their support and demonstrate their support was most of the most of the talking done in Te Reo? Yeah. yes yes and interspersed with waiata and haka and incredible stories history people's own experiences of land loss and the immediate issue was the taking of the land at Bastion Point but it was it was emblematic and symptomatic of all sorts of other issues that were all boiling around and coming to the surface. Were, were there other Pākehā there, Andrew? Yep, yep. There were 222 people arrested and it was almost exactly 50-50 Māori and Pākehā. Was there ever a kind of temptation to go, this has become a big part of my life, uh, the language, the culture, I'm associating with it, I'm, I'm inspired by it, I want to be part of it? at a kind of more fundamental level? Well, I, um, uh, as I said, I was, I was made to feel very, very welcome and uh, at Hui on Marae, I never felt excluded in any way from anything that was going on or anything that I wanted to participate in. But at the same time, I, I never felt that I was Maori, you know. I mean, I never felt that you had to be Māori to be to be welcome. You know? And at the same time, it, it always seemed very important to me that, for example, uh, that Māori language had to remain Māori. It had to be Māori language. It was the language of Māori people and it belonged to Māori people. They were offering it to me as a gift to share, but it was not my language. And um, I needed to be respectful of that it was a funny time because I had the privilege of being able to learn Māori at university where a lot of Māori people didn't have the same privilege themselves. And so it, there could be embarrassing situations where I was a more fluent speaker of Māori as a Pākehā than, than many Māori people were. And um, I had to be very conscious of the sensitivities around that. You know, I didn't want to be part of the problem, <laughs> to be part of the solution. And... Um, so I, you, I, I was always very conscious that I was a Pākehā, not because Māori people were making me feel like that, but because I felt it was important to, um, to feel that I was, that, yeah, I, I am who I am. You know, I don't need to change my identity in order to be made welcome. Um, but I did need to be very conscious about the importance of Māori people remaining in control and remaining you know, making the decisions, being in the driving seat of all the issues. I was there to support, not to take over. Um, did you find yourself ending up becoming a bit of an apologist for for the stance of those that were looking to advance the language? Wider public attitudes were very, very different then. That's another thing that's hard for people to understand these days, really how different things were. I was at uh, university with people who were native speakers of Māori who were training to be teachers. And they were all native speakers of Māori. They all knew each other. And in class, they tended to speak Māori to each other. But if they met on the street, for example, they tended not to speak Māori because it was an invitation to be, you know, insulted or abused or whatever. People, people generally didn't like Māori people speaking Māori because they felt excluded. You know, they felt they must be talking about us. If they're using a language that we don't understand, it must be because they got, they're trying to say something we don't, they don't want us to hear. But uh, that has really radically changed. I mean, the, the whole f 
situation of the language has changed a lot over the last 40, 45 years. But that's one way it's changed. It's that I think generally public attitudes are much more open now. There's much more interest. People are quite willing for their children to be taught Māori at school. They like it. Um, I've even seen a survey where over half of the people in Waikato wanted their children to be taught Māori as a compulsory subject. Once upon a time, if you link those words Māori language and compulsory together, it was just an invitation to a war. So anyway, yeah. But a little snapshot of perhaps um, resistance uh, or suspicion around the language amongst the Pākehā, the wider Pākehā community in those days. Yeah, that happened every Māori language week. Whenever there was a promotion of Māori language week, people would write letters in, you know, saying, don't you force that language down our throats. You know, English is the language of the world. What's the point of learning Māori? It's a useless language. You, you know, nobody outside New Zealand even speaks Māori. You know, all that kind of attitude. And, and seriously racist, racist uh, letters to the editor. You've had a trajectory uh, career-wise which you know has had a lot to do with the language where do you find um, what's your sort of take on where te reo Māori is now well uh, the situation facing the, the language now as far as I can tell is very very different from what it was in 1974 when I first began there's a new generation who've come through as fully native speakers. They've grown up in Māori-speaking households and some of them are now raising their own children in, you know, their second-generation native speakers of Māori and they're supremely confident, supremely skilled young people, um, very, very capable. But there's not a huge number of them. And meanwhile, the large number of native speakers of Māori who were all older people have died away. So there's there's an awful lot riding on the shoulders of relatively few younger people. Are we past a period where that that kind of cringe, uh, that kind of frustration Parker had about hearing Māori spoken, is, are we past that now? By and large, I think we are, and the trend is definitely in the right direction. But um, as Pākehā people become more uh, open and enthusiastic about the idea of learning Māori, but it's extremely important for everybody to be clear that this is Māori language and it's up to Māori people to de determine and decide how and when it'll be developed. When we started talking, you talked about uh, the language as a gift. Uh, has it continued to be a gift for the whole period uh, that you've been speaking it? Oh, my, my involvement with Māori language has just so enriched my life. I, I will forever be grateful to the people who've shared their, their reo and, and their, their lives with me. It's just been absolutely fantastic. One of the, uh, the, the motivations, one of the reasons that Te Reo Māori was set up in the beginning was as a result of something said by Te Uenuku Rene from Ngāti Toa and, uh, and Ngāti Rokawa, I understand. Um, he, he, he hosted a group, I think, from Te Reo Māori out at Takapu Wahia, and he, he, his ohaki to the group was, Kia tai atu tātou ki te aroa ro te atua, te rāpea te atua ki a tātou, ka pēheatia e koutou te reo rangatira i hoatungia nei e ahau ki a koutou. He said, when we arrive at the pearly gates in the presence of, of our Lord, 
he might well say to us, what did you people do with this noble language that I gave to you? That was at a time when, you know, Te Reo Māori was facing extinction. And the question was, what are you going to do about it? Mm-hmm. And the answer is, you just have to do your best. You have to do your best. And so that you can say to your grandchildren, well, whether the language lives or dies, I did my best. Andrew Robb, broadcaster and former Māori Party media advisor. I'm Jeremy Sitanovich for Tiahikaa.